0: Oh, well, good morning again everyone. It's so good to have faces in the room. So good morning to you. We're so glad that you're here. If you're watching online, uh, we want to welcome you as well. We are really forward to you being able to get back here uh, at some point, but it's good to at least have a few faces more in the room. So welcome. Uh, 105 days. That's how long it was. 105 days uh, uh, ago. I just finished. I was preaching that Sunday as well, so I just and we went into the, uh, into the foyer, and the information started flowing. Schools were canceled, and we had thought at that point, six weeks, man, that is so long. We would learn later just how long it was going to be. 105 days, a lot has happened in 105 days, but we are here this morning, amen? Let's have a church service. Let's do it, yeah. And if you're at home, uh, if you clapped by yourself, that's good too. We're, we're happy about that. But uh, yes, like I said, we are really looking forward to you being able to get back with us as well. We are going to be in the book of Acts uh, throughout the summer, but we have changed uh, the sermon series a bit. We're changing a bit because there's a movement that's happening, both uh, in our sermon series, but really in the text. We are seeing a movement now uh, in the talk about that in a few minutes. But for now, let's go before the text. If you remember, let's stand, if we will. We'll say the prayer, the Shema prayer, uh, that helps refocus us, gets us ready to hear from the Word, and then we will read. We're in Acts 6 this morning, 1 through 7. So let's start with the prayer. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, With all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. This is Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says this In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Parchorus, Niconar, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, the Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So like I said, we're going to be tracking through the book of Acts through the summer here, but we're calling this new chapter of Acts, The Movement. And the reason is, is because the narrative actually does take a movement here in chapter 6. Primarily, these last uh, five chapters before have all been in Jerusalem, in and around the Holy Land, centering in Jerusalem. And we're going to start to see now a shift, a movement, happen from it being just in Jerusalem to spreading and really fulfilling what was said in Acts one eight, that the gospel would spread in Jerusalem first, but then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends, Of the earth. And so there's this physical movement that is going to begin where this uh, gospel is going to begin to spread all over the world. But it isn't just a physical movement, it's also a spiritual one. Because as uh, the Spirit has come, as Pentecost has hit, as Christ has been buried and then raised from the dead. There is a new spiritual shift as people are learning what it looks like to live under the new covenant. And so there are shifts and movements that will happen. Uh, movements like inclu- from exclusion to inclusion. Or movements from centralization to mobilization. Movements from dissension to unity. And each week this summer we're going to see a new movement. Of a new way of thinking. A new uh, way to change the way it perhaps was done uh, at, uh, before, but not because the gospel has changed, not because God has changed, but now under the new covenant, this movement is heading out into the whole world, and what does it look like to spread that forever? And this movement starts with this story, because this is the first time where we will read uh, of different groups that are happening within the church community. Dissension that's happening internally. Up until this point, we have seen all the struggle, all of the, the uh, uh, hardship happen externally. Think People outside of the community are coming and persecuting and coming down on the church. Now we're seeing for the first time, what does it look like as a, as a group grows? How do we manage things internally? And so there's a shift that's going to need to happen. This is actually a very common problem as organizations and groups or churches grow, but it requires not a normal solution, it requires a unique solution. And we're gonna read about that this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles, just as a, as a framework or a foundation to what we're gonna look at today. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. It's towards the end of your Bible, And just as a way of precursor, as a way to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about, let's read a couple of these passages. First, 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 16, Paul says this, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. May God uh, encourage you, give you hope, and strengthen you in every deed and word. Now turn two books to the left, to the book of Colossians. Two books to the left. The book of Colossians in chapter chapter 3. Paul, again, is writing to a little church in in Colossians, and he says this, uh, verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever you're going to do, little church, whether in word or deed. Do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." In Thessalonians, he says, may he encourage you in every good deed and word and in Colossians and whatever you do, do it in word and deed. Do it uh, in giving thanks to Jesus the God the Father through him. Turn nine books to the left to the book of Luke book of Luke. Acts was written by Luke. So the gospel of Luke is sort of his part one, his chapter one of this story he's telling in the world. If you go flip over to Luke chapter 24. Luke is telling the story of Jesus here, and then Acts becomes his story that he tells of how the church responds to what was being told and what they heard through Jesus. And in this chapter, Luke chapter 24, Jesus has, has died, he's been buried, he's been resurrected, and there's rumors that he's popping around meeting people and showing himself to different groups of people. There's two men, they're walking down the road to a little place called Emmaus. They're talking about this thing and a third person joins us. They don't know it's Jesus. They don't recognize him. And they're talking about everything that's gone on. And we'll pick up that story in verse 17 of, of Luke 24. It says this, He asked them, this is Jesus, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, one of them, named Cleopas, na- uh, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, which I love. This is Jesus asking about his own story. What, what things are you, you talking about there? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Word and deed, deed and word. You see, there's this rhythm, there's this theme long and consistent in the scriptures that talk about the combination of word and deed. You see, the scriptures, they understand uh, we as a people, we as a Christian people, we as God's people, have a unique witness to the world that involves the combination, the harmony, between word and deed. The scriptures talk about this again. You see it in different stories. Sometimes it's a little more implicit. Sometimes it's a little more explicit, but you're seeing the rhythm over and over again that whatever we do as a people who represent God, we do in word and deed. Just like Our Messiah, who did things powerfully in word and deed. You see, the unique witness of our church, the unique witness as a church as a whole, is in word and deed. And we see that play out again in this passage. So let's take a look at the problem. What was the problem going on in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 6 in verse 1. Let's just read that first verse again so we can dive in a little bit here. It says this, In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I got an amen from Marilyn Urschel in the first service. She amened that. She wanted to make sure all the widows got, got their proper amount of food. So verse 1 lays out the problem. But if you scratch just below the surface, as you can imagine, there is way more going on here. In fact, this is a story 600 years in the making. So come with me for a few minutes. Let's look at what was really going on underneath the surface of this tension. You see, 600 years earlier, a majority of God's people at that time was called the the kingdom of Judah. This is actually where we get the term Jew from. It's sort of like a nickname. You Judah people, you Jews. They were living together in God's holy land. But after years and generations of unfaithfulness, God has had enough. He he requires a separation. And so he allows uh, kingdoms and empires from all over the world to come and to capture them and to exile them to all sorts of places around the world. So uh, Jews are going all over the place, expelled from their holy land and scattered across the whole empire. Now, 70 years later, God allowed them to return. And some chose to do so. Think Ezra, think Nehemiah. They head home, they rebuild walls, they establish a temple again, they get the religious system working again. But many of them didn't come back. Many of them stayed where they were. And this doesn't mean they weren't faithful to God or faithful to Judaism. If For whatever reason, they chose not to go back to their, uh, their lands. And as you can imagine, 600 years go by, generation after generation, you start to learn the customs and the rituals and the language of the people that you're living with. To the point now that even though you are still a Jew, even though you're still worshiping God, even though you still make pilgrimages to uh, uh, Jerusalem a couple times a year for the, for the uh, sanctuary and for the festivals, you're still sort of different than those Jews that came back and were part of the homeland. They still spoke their ancient Hebrew or Aramaic. They still went to uh, uh, synagogues that spoke those languages. They were very much invested in the Holy Land and what it meant. And so when you came as somebody else, you came sort of as a guest, even though you're still very much a Jew. And so what happens is, is that then Pentecost comes and everyone starts to get together again. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, it says this, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. This is all these uh, Jews from other places that have settled down and have made families and established a home somewhere else and have now returned to Jerusalem for that. And so they've come, and they see the incredible work the Holy Spirit does. They witness Pentecost, and they say, whatever's going on here, we got to stay. We've got to be part of what's going on here, and they do. But the problem is, is you're still sort of an outsider. You're, you're, You're one of us, but you're not really one of us. You come from somewhere else. You speak a different language. You see the world differently. Now, the major uh, philosophical idea at the, uh, at the time, the one that was exploding across the world, was that of Hellenism. Hellenism is the, is the growth of westernized or Greek thinking. I'd say thi- uh, uh, picture kind of the man with the disc, right? Like the, you know what I'm talking about? Although he's not wearing any clothes, so don't picture it too closely. Just kind of like that's, that's what you're talking about. Gymnasiums, stadiums. All of things Greek, all things Western, was uh, for the last 300 years up until this point, was exploding across. And so, of course, if you're not living in the Holy Land, if you're not keeping strict Jewish practices and cultures, generation after generation are going to go by, and these thoughts and ideas and philosophies, these Western ideas would begin to seep in to your thinking, even though you're still fully devoted to God. You don't speak the language anymore. You speak Greek. You go to Greek synagogues. You think in Western thoughts. And you're very much different than your brothers who remained pure back in the Holy Land. So you've come to the temple. You've come at Pentecost. You've seen the incredible work God is doing. You decide, I want to be a part of that, and now you're thrown in with people who have a home court advantage because they've been here for generations after generations. And this movement grows, and it grows, and it grows. You can see why at some point there's going to be problems. There's going to be strife. Seeds of dissension began to sprout out between these two groups, Of people. Some choose to stay and be part of this new movement. So how are we going to figure out how to work together, even though one side has all the advantages, hold all the power, speak the native tongue, are represented almost 100% in the leadership. How do we bring this other group who are disadvantaged, who don't speak the language, who isn't their home country, who isn't, don't, don't have home court advantage here? problems begin to come up. The Hebrew Jews have more influence since it's their city, and this, dis- this advantage will play itself out here in our story with the distribution of food. In the patriarchal society in which family units were led by men, widows were particularly vulnerable in that society. And so the church decided that they were going to take up the cause, they were going to funds. If you remember back in chapter 4, remember where they were bringing funds to the apostles? There was a kind of a community fund that was being developed. Ananias and Sapphira, so they kind of fudged the numbers a bit. Things didn't go well for them, right? That's as part of this fund that they then began using to distribute food to the socially vulnerable in their city, namely here the widows, because they were probably the most exposed to the societal disadvantages back in those days. So the church said, we're going to take it upon ourselves to make sure these people are fed, make sure these people are taken care of. But the problem was, is that the widows of the Hellenizers, the Hellenistic Jews, were complaining that they were getting overlooked when it came to the actual distribution. You said in theory you're going to do this, but when it comes down to the distribution of it, they complained that they were being overlooked in the daily allotments. There was an oversight that was happening. And uh, realistically, the reason for this is those who were the hands, the distributors, were the Hebraic Jews. They, they were the ones, they were the leaders, they were the ones passing things out. All the apostles were of the Hebraic uh, uh, side. And so whether intentional or not, and there are arguments on both sides, one side, the side that was disadvantaged, the side that didn't have representation, the side that didn't hold all the cards, were being overlooked, were being overlooked. And even if it wasn't intentional, even if it truly was simply an oversight on the Hebrew side's uh, uh, details, the perceived favoritism created a sense of a privileged class even if it wasn't done intentionally, it created a perceived narrative of a privileged class. So they complained. Now, when I hear the word complain, I envision my two oldest kids complaining and whining that they don't have enough to do, right? That's just, in my mind, that's complaining to me. So it has a negative connotation when I think of that. When I hear the word complain, I think, baseless. I think overreaction. I think whining. I think just figure it out. So when I hear that they complained, I'll admit I initially thought, well, yeah, they're complaining. I think of my my eight-year-old complaining she's too hot and has nothing to do, and she's bored. But the word for complain is an interesting one. It's gagusmas, which means to murmur, to mutter, or a secret displeasure that is not out in the open, a secret displeasure that's not out in the open. open. It's not so much an annoying whining as it is a groundswell. It's quiet, and some people know, while other people don't. So if I could sum this whole thing up for you, if I could do it in one statement, I would say this. You had people of the same nationality but were made up of distinct groups who talked differently, went to different churches, and experienced the world differently. There was tension between them, and the group that was not in a position of power experienced neglect and injustice, which, up until that point, was not out in the open. Let me say that again so you can hear it. What you had was a people of the same nationality, but were made up of distinct groups who talked differently, went to different churches, and experienced the world differently. There was tension between them, and the group that was not in a position of power experienced neglect and injustice, which, up until that point, was not out in the open. Man, that doesn't sound familiar at all. If only the Bible is a little more relevant to the issues we face today, huh? But I guess we'll soldier on, I suppose. Now, now, The early church recognized this. Here's the solution. The early church recognized it. They listened. They heard. Right? It wasn't, they weren't, it wasn't a loud riot. It was a groundswell quiet. A a, a gagusmas. And the early church listened. And the early church heard. And then the early church responded. And they remedied the problem by appointing seven godly individuals to serve. Now, these seven would take on the role of ensuring justice for all, provision for all, and grace for all. In fact, the word serve in the passage is daikonos, which is where we get the word deacon. So what we're seeing here is the... the, uh, Formation of the role of the deacon in the early church. This is the earliest uh, uh, way that we see this role come about and snap into action, is right here. They assign deacons, they create the role of the deacon. And this story is the establishment of that role. Here's the interesting thing all seven of them are Hellenists. All seven were chosen from the side who had been misrepresented or underrepresented, who had been experiencing neglect, who had been overlooked. The early church said, let us discern what to do about this, and they decided we are going to put seven men from that side in charge. Now, we know this for several reasons that I won't get to, but big as much is that all seven names are Greek. in their their nation. No self-respecting Hebrew is going to name their son Parmimas. It's just not, that's just not what's going to happen, right? Nicholas, in fact, uh, they go so great as to say Nicholas was a convert of Judaism and wasn't even a Jew at all. They go to great lengths to show us how and who they chose to be in charge. One scholar says it this way. It demonstrates a great act of graciousness. Because the leadership of this new deacon role would come from the ranks of the underprivileged and unrepresented. One scholar says it shows and demonstrates a great act of graciousness. Another says it's the willingness to completely right the wrong. The willingness to completely right the wrong. Or it's the willingness to reconcile, even at your own cost. Because if you're a Hellenistic Jew, and you decide, or excuse me, if you're a Hebraic Jew, and you decide to put seven Hellenistic Jews in charge, it doesn't take long before your mind starts to run and go, what happens though if they get put in charge and then they remember what what happened before? What would happen if we put them in charge and they hold a grudge? What would happen if we put them in charge, and then they do to us what we, whether intentionally or not, did to them? And so to put seven of the other side in charge exposes you to great risk and cost. And the early church said, yes. Because reconciliation comes at a cost, or at least at the risk of, Of a cost. And this is what the early church chooses to do, because true reconciliation will always require us to risk losing. And in the end, they did this because they knew the unique witness of the church is in word and deed. You see, the response was not just to address the problem with deeds at the expense of the word, but in harmony with The word. The apostles taught the early church that the servant role of deacons would allow them to focus their attention on prayer and God's word, and so that each role would ensure that neither word nor deed would be neglected. It was a holistic approach to say, as as the church, As carriers of the gospel, we have a unique role and a unique witness where we can offer the world not just word or just deed, but a combination of both in harmony with one another. The solution was not to point to one and ignore the other. The solution was to make sure that everyone had the right roles in place so that both could be affirmed and lifted up so that the world might see a better picture of this gospel that they were preaching. The seven would take on the role of ensuring justice for all, provision for all, and grace for all, so that the apostles could continue to preach a Christ who brought justice for all, and provision for all, and grace for all. You see, the message is matched because the gospel isn't just good news for some, it's good news for everybody. And until it's good news for everybody, it's not good news for anybody. Word and deed. One author puts it this way. The early church took very seriously the combination of spiritual and material concerns in carrying out its God-given ministry. And even when the church found it necessary to divide internal responsibilities and assign different functions, The early believers saw these as a varying aspect of one total ministry, word, and deed. And as a result, the word spread. We get another. This happens in Acts quite a bit. Something happens, the church responds correctly to it. And what happens as a result? More people come to know God because they're seeing that what they're saying and what they're doing match. They're seeing a God that gives life, that is for all, that provides grace freely. And then they see a community that functions the exact same way. In fact, it, we're told specifically that priests come to know Jesus, which is significant because the priests are who what they've been fighting with the last three chapters. It's all been the Sadducees and the priests. I've talked about before, the system that was trying to maintain power, and yet when they see power willingly be given away, when they see power willingly be able to hand over to someone else, that is powerful. That changes their perspective and it turns their world upside down. And they can't help but come to saving faith in Jesus. Because the church understood their unique witness of word and deed. Here at Randall Church, we continue to do this as well. We want to create a structure that mirrors what we see in the scriptures. And so I believe that we have developed a strong elder and pastor team who are continually working on focusing on word, the word and prayer as we lead Randall Church. And now we have sensed as a leadership team over the last year that we need to turn our attention to strengthening our deacon team as well. So this year we have been developing our own way of identifying and discerning and training and deploying deacons into our care corridors to organize service inside and outside of the church. We've expanded Stephanie Bohinsky's role to care coordinator to keep us informed, organized, and progressing forward in this pursuit, because we ultimately Randall want to see what we're doing here mirror what they're doing there, because we understand that we have a unique witness to this world in word and deed. And man, do we need it now more than ever. As we close, I'd like to invite the van back. As we wrap up here, I joked before about this situation is unlike our own, but we know this story has hit close to home in the last 105 days, haven't we? There's a gagusmas in the air, a muttering, a murmuring, a secret displeasure that until now has not been that out in the open, despite the attempts our brothers and sisters of color are trying to tell us something and the question is is that will we take the church's lead to listen and to hear and then to respond we must learn from the response of the early church. We must recognize it. We must listen. We must hear. And then we must affirm one thing, the thing that makes us unique, the thing that gives us our unique witness, is that the only thing that will, will solve the problem, the only lasting solution, is that of word and deed. You see, the world tries to deal with this problem with deed and no word. The world tries to solve the problem, but they're missing half of it. There's a lot of good deed, but they don't have the word. The tension we see in our world will not be solved simply with protests and education and policy change and programs. Because the root of the tension is our sin and depravity. And the only thing that can deal with this is the death and resurrection of Jesus, repentance of our individual and collective guilt, and the slow hard work of becoming more like Jesus. That is the only thing that will solve the problem. We have to get to the root and stop mowing down the weed alone. But, hear me church, The church can be tempted to deal with the problem with the word and no deed. As a church, we cannot proclaim a Jesus who gives life and condemn those who end it without deeds of fostering and adopting and supporting works like sun rays who provide the resources needed to sustain life, its word, and its deed. As a church, we cannot proclaim a Jesus who rebuilds and restores and not join in the deeds of disaster relief our organization and denomination organize to be a tangible witness to the thing that God wants to do in your life. It's word and it's deed. And as a church, we cannot proclaim a Jesus who sets the captives free and not hear from brothers and sisters in our community who are telling us they are not we are willing, are we willing to act with great graciousness? And are we willing to completely right the wrong? And in fact, are we willing to risk it costing us something in the future? Because the unique witness in the world, the one that you and I have, the one that we have together, is that of word. pray. God, we are thankful that we get to come on this journey with you of proclaiming your word and your deed to a world that desperately needs it. And God, I I know we we are just one church. We are just one people. And these tensions go so far and so deep that we know on our own there's nothing we can do. completely right the wrong, but you give us a part to play in it. So God, may we proclaim to a a world a God who brings life, a God who rebuilds, a God who restores, a God who sets Us wisdom to know our part to play. And Lord, if it comes to the point where it will cost us, may we say yes and follow the lead of the early church that saw the world be turned upside down because of it. We love you, Jesus. Teach us, help us to hear.